Welcome to STEM Interviews, a science communication interview series powered by stemcognito.org, a not-for-profit platform showcasing the best in STEM research for free. STEM Interviews is hosted by ex-researcher turned professional science communicator Dr. Sarah Wettstadt. Each episode, Sarah chats to a scientist, technologist, engineer or mathematician about their research and why it's important for both scientists and non-scientists. She also asks about their science communication tactics, hobbies, career journeys and pretty much everything in between. So today we have with us AJ who is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Iowa. And he's working on insulin-dependent regulation of skeletal muscle mitochondria. So I welcome you, AJ, to our little STEM, STEM computer interview. Hi. And maybe we can just start with the first question of like, can you summarize your research for our audience? What, are you, what is your sure. project on? that I'm doing in uh, the University of Iowa in the Diabetes Center, um, which is ran by my boss, Dr. Edel Abel. We study uh, diabetic cardiomyopathy and type 2 diabetes. I'm focused on type 2 diabetes, which is uh, specifically in the skeletal muscle. Um, and that's my site of interest. And so what I'm doing is looking at a protein called OPA1. OPA1 regulates fusion cycles, meaning that it takes two mitochondria and it joins them together to make one mitochondria. Yeah. And then fission is when you separate the two. And so what's interesting is that when you're aging or you have type 2 diabetes, the levels of OPA1 go down, which leads okay. to early signs of insulin resistance in the skeletal muscle and also potentially fat accumulation. So what I'm trying to do now is trying to develop intervention strategies when you're losing important mitochondrial genes such as OPA1. What can you do to alter function and still restore insulin sensitivity there? And so one way we're doing that is through a drug called Tuka, which is FDA approved. Mm -hmm. And this particular FDA approved drug allows for us to um, relax the ER stress that occurs. And the ER is the endoplasmic reticulum. It's a tubular structure that allows for you to fold proteins correctly. And it sends the proteins to other parts of organelles in the cell to help properly function and keep homeostasis, meaning um, neutral level um, within the, in the cell. And so when this occurs, um, we see that when you have type two diabetes, I also should say that ER stress is increased, meaning that the ER is overworked mm -hmm. and it's producing too many proteins and not folding them properly. So this drug relaxes this. So now we're trying to understand how this drug can help us actually join another two organelle communication factors together, meaning the MAM space. So we're looking at ER and mitochondria. And with this particular drug, we're trying to understand how it can increase the turnover of proteins in that space so that it's a stronger signaling hub. So meaning okay. that it allows for proper homeostasis to occur again. And then the other thing that I'm looking at is actually trying to repurpose um, alkaloid compounds to, to refold the cristae. And I'm taking this project with me to Vanderbilt in the Department of Molecular Physiology and Biophysics. And we're also looking at other alkaloid compounds that are in tropical plants um, in certain regions across the globe that are tropical that I have of interest. And we're using mass spec to isolate those particular compounds and then actually determine if they can refold the cristae. And if they can refold the cristae, 
then we're able to establish a model of actually um, regenerating the mitochondria um, without having to give a, um, a, like maybe a harsher chemical compound um, so we could do something more natural that's similar mm -hmm. to like the Tuka compound, right? Um, so that's something that we're trying to do now. And then we also believe that if we give back the alkaloid compound, it not only refolds cristae, but it'll restore mitochondrial function, which leads to proper Merck communication, meaning the mitochondria and the ER join together properly again, and then they work in, in unison. That means that you decelerate aging, and then you prevent the dysfunction of mitochondria that will cause type 2 diabetes. Okay. So one thing that is not really clear to me yet, why, what is the connection between the mitochondria and the um, ER? What, why is this signaling important between these two? Yes, this is a great question. So there's um, a number of proteins that actually work on both sides mm -hmm. of the ER and the mitochondria. And this is a rare space because um, these proteins can be recruited there from other places or specifically housed there permanently. And so on the outside of the ER and mitochondria and other organelles, they interact with these set of proteins. And so these proteins do specific functions so that you can actually have proper homeostasis. Sometimes you need to produce more lipids in a cell. Mm -hmm. So the ER will get close to the mitochondria and shuffle lipids inside but it requires specialized proteins that are in this space. Sometimes let's say the mitochondria um, are low on calcium. Well, with this space, when they interact, this little small membrane in between, they're able to transfer calcium from the ER to okay. the mitochondria, or if it's too high, it can go the other way around as well. So the ER is not only folding proteins, it's also producing lipids and transporting calcium. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Helps regulate calcium as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and also it shapes the mitochondria as well. So there's alternative mechanisms for the mitochondria to split apart. And mm -hmm. so it helps to bring in actin and also ER to split the mitochondria apart. So ER is very important for actually proper segregation of the mitochondria to split apart its contents as well. And um, if it's delayed, it can create these nanotunnels that form. Mm -hmm. Right now, the literature suggests that Mitochondria, mitochondria communication is split through this nanotube and it's because of delayed fission. So this ER is very important for regulating these fission events as well. Okay. So how does all of this tie in into diabetes then? Great question. I'm still missing so this link. <laughs> yes, so basically when you have insulin resistance, you have alterations in calcium, you have alterations in lipid accumulation what? and you also okay. have let me just get into this. What does insulin resistance mean on a molecular level? Okay, great question. It's where you're no longer producing enough insulin to actually regulate glucose uptake. Mm -hmm. And so GLUT4 is a particular transporter or channel, if you will. I'm trying to think of a way that people can understand it. Um, probably a transporter would be okay. Transporter, um, yes. and, and yeah, And you're basically taken like from one side of some region to another side of the region to uptake glucose. And so basically this transporter allows for you, it's activated through insulin signaling to allow for glucose to come inside and then be metabolized and used yeah. properly through the electron transport chain to make ATP, which is your energy source. Yeah. But um, without um, the proper um, signaling hubs to do this, um, you're no longer able to do this as regularly. And one of those signaling hubs is the Merck space. So okay. insulin resistance occurs because the Merck space no longer 
has the communication needed to relay insulin signals to help maintain that transportation of glucose inside the cell. So basically okay. there's molecules in the Merck space because um, I don't want to get into technical names of the proteins, but there's three or four proteins that actually um, go in this Merck space mm -hmm. that help regulate insulin sensitivity. Yeah. And so when they're no longer there, those factors uh, contribute to insulin resistance okay. because it takes longer for the factor to come inside when we see insulin present um, or if you don't see insulin present as well. And this Merck space can also cause inflammation which can also lead to type one diabetes where you have like an autoimmune response. So really the Merck space is important, but we only studied it in the context of type two diabetes, yeah. understanding like what's happening in the presence and absence of insulin and the presence and absence of, of OPA-1 um, and looking at how glucose is uptaken and, and being metabolized into ATP. Um, so that's kind of like the angle and the connection. And the reason that we started with the skeletal muscle is because insulin resistance first starts in the skeletal muscle before it starts in the pancreas, the liver, mm -hmm. any other tissue. So it's, it's very heavily involved. And because we have a lot of muscle throughout our body, this is why we study it because it's very important um, as well. Okay, perfect. And now you said you're already working on a drug that is somehow making all this better. Tell me more about yes. this, this drug. So... <laughs> Um, in my in my lab, I don't want to say too much because in my lab, uh, we're, we're still in the process of working on it. But uh, when I officially started Vanderbilt, we'll be studying um, a series of alkaloid compounds that are, um, how can I say, they're um, phytoestrogen rich. I guess I could say that in xenoestrogens, I could say that because um, okay. I don't want to tell you which ones they are That's in particular. Fine. Um, and so we know that these compounds may be important for regulating folding because in the laboratory, another investigator in Dr. Abel's lab, um, Dr. Rhonda Souvenir, will publish a paper um, that I'm a part of that talks about how different types of steroid compounds can regulate Christe folding again. Um, mm -hmm. And so what I'm interested in is understanding are there alternatives in the actual plant world or we don't have to give, you know, isolated compounds of 17 beta estradiol, which is estrogen. Um, and we can actually give phytoestrogens maybe in a, in a diet that okay. actually could help refold Christe properly. And then that way we just need to figure out how to be more nutrition uh, rich on certain phytoestrogens to help refold Christe appropriately. Okay, and then so this would also help regulate insulin sensitivity because estrogen is known to regulate um, different aspects of glucose sensing neurons in the brain, and then also peripherally as well, regulating insulin sensitivity in the skeletal muscle. Okay, so what exactly is it folding or what is it helpful? Sorry. Great question. So Christae are the folds inside of a mitochondria. So if you have a mitochondria, um, they have invaginations ah, called Christae. Yeah, Where yeah, the, yeah, the, the electron little, little, chain. Um, exactly. Nice, yeah, exactly. okay, I remember. <laughs> And so OPA-1 regulates all of these folds. So okay. if it's not there, all of those folds fall apart and you just have like, like a cookie monster mouth yeah. where it's just teeth at the top and teeth at the bottom, but no like ah, going across. Okay. And so that's why OPA-1 is so important. I guess I should have told you that earlier. So then you obviously <laughs> um, have less of the, mem of the inner mitochondrial membrane and less um, electron transport complex. Exactly, can right. Um, and less yeah, ATP and production. Energy, yeah, yeah, that makes sense, okay. Yes, and so that is why we focus on uh, looking at OPA-1. 
because it helps fold these cristae and there's okay. complexes that opal one associates with that actually help protect the folding of the cristae or other proteins in the mitochondria that opal one interacts with that help regulate insulin sensitivity and so it's kind of like a master regulator of cristae dynamics as well as inner membrane fusion and so what we're interested in is just trying to figure out if there's a way to actually not have your mit mitochondria look like a cookie monster mouth but actually look normal um, and so we're trying to restore those cristae that go okay. across the membrane um, from side to side and basically make them all fold correctly as lamellar cristae. Wow. Um, when you lose open one, they're like little dots called tubular cristae. Um, mm -hmm. And so we're just trying to restore the normal function of those. And we believe that phytoestrogens can do that. Um, and so I believe that there's a group of other cristae proteins that I'm studying in my laboratory called the Mikos complex, as well as... Um, other particular um, interesting um, proteins that I won't mention. Um, <laughs> so they're published. Um, we found some more novel um, proteins that regulate cristae dynamics besides OPA1 and the Mikos complex. And so what we're interested in is restoring that function because everyone's not gonna have an OPA1 mutation, but maybe people have damaged cristae as an alter yeah. alternative to like, let's say mitochondrial dysfunction or abnormal mitochondrial function. So if we're repairing the cristae issue, we repair the energetics of the mitochondria, the membrane potential, which allows okay. for more calcium to be regulated in the mitochondria, which allows for you to have more energy because it's being used as a byproduct of the glucose that you brought into the cell to produce ATP. Okay, that kind of makes sense now, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Okay, so maybe we should um, switch gears then, because yesterday okay. we already talked about your other passion, which is yes. mentoring and um, improving students' health in the academic community. And That's maybe we can chat a bit about this. So what, okay. yeah, what is your passion about this and what does it have to do with mentoring and how did you get into this? So I got into mentoring because I've had excellent mentors along the way. Some of my excellent mentors um, would actually also include Dale. I met him in graduate school. Um, and then before that, in undergrad, was my first interaction with what a amazing mentor would be like. And so that was Dr. Heisetta Schuler as well as um, Dr. Clark. And then with time, they became colleagues when I got my PhD as well. Um, but one thing was that I learned about holistic and intentional mentoring from them, meaning that they created a mentoring plan just specific for me. So that's what holistic mentoring is. Oh, wow. And intentional mentoring is going above the positive or negative mentoring influences that, that may occur in normal day you know, life in a lab, but actually checking up on an individual, making sure that their health is okay, making sure that their mental health is okay, mm -hmm. making sure that they're a well-rounded person, making sure that they're only not accomplishing the research, but accomplishing life goals. So that's kind of more intentional mentoring. It's very yeah. thought-provoking uh, thought mentoring, meaning that you have to develop strategies around what's going to make that person a better person and allow them to reach their goals. And so intentional mentoring also means challenging the mentor, the mentee, excuse me, to be able to reach goals that they thought that they previously couldn't too. So it's a combination of the mentor working with them to reach their goals, but also um, a mentee reaching their goals by a little bit of a push from their mentor as well. Yeah, okay. And you also published a paper in Cell that I just found about scientific success oh, that is yeah. mainly supported by mentoring. Um, yeah, so last yeah. year during the pandemic, when it hit, I myself didn't have 
that great of an experience with my mentor. So I felt pretty much left alone. Um, what one advice or two advices would you give to a mentor like in this challenging situation now during the pandemic? Yeah, um, so that's a great question. So um, I wrote another paper for um, pathogens and disease that'll come out pretty soon called intention about intentional mentoring. But one thing that I can say just in general is that until this paper comes out, um, I would like to pull from some of my papers, learning to actually tell the mentor how to say no. Sometimes when a student may bring you awesome ideas, um, if you're shooting down a student in a way that is not productive, that actually causes more harm, that mm -hmm. decreases uh, productivity and scientific curiosity. So that's one thing that I would love for for mentors to learn how to do better because it's, it's essential because it's a fine balance between um, uplifting a student and being firm with the student, but you don't want to destroy a student's confidence or a training. So that's one thing. The other thing is, since you mentioned the cell paper um, that was published last year, it's about the pipeline where we lose trainees across the stages. And so one thing that I can also encourage that mentors do is to always keep in mind what stage is this individual on the pipeline? Meaning, are they at the very beginning where they're an undergrad or even a tech? Are they a post-bac student? Are they a graduate student or postdoc? And the reason this matters is because maybe that means that you have to tailor how you mentor someone to be able to give them the most appropriate advice to be able to survive and make it to the next step. Yeah. So what I mean is that I wanna encourage mentors to start to be more intentional. Find out what the mentee is interested in. Develop an individual development plan that allows for you to check on them every three months if they're reaching their goals and you can reassess so that you don't have to just sit there and say, oh, I wonder how they're doing then wait six months to a committee and you're saying, this is wrong. But if you have three months to actually fix that and check in every time, that's gonna make a difference. And the other little tidbit of advice that I have is make a mentoring compact. Find out how to make a happy marriage. So everyone says, you know, you're always married to your PI till you get your PhD or you, and you're into your faculty position or your career position. Well, that's kind of true, but maybe you should I make a contract. I never heard that in my life. <laughs> oh, you haven't? Maybe it's no, more No, that's the first time American. I hear this. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's more yeah. of an American thing. Um, but a lot of times we'll say like, you know, like uh, you're stuck with your PI. Maybe another way you can have heard is like you're stuck with your PI until they let you go. Um, but anyway, um, basically, one way is to create a mentoring contract, yeah. which allows for your mentor and you to sit down and actually develop specific goals that you want to reach um, separate from your IDP plan and the expectations of your mentor versus the expectations that you have so that you can actually find a happy medium. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're negotiable terms and sometimes they're not as negotiable, depending on what's going on, but that's okay. But at least you can find something that's going to make you happy. Yeah. and that you can actually enjoy the environment you're in because the community of your environment in the laboratory matters more than anything else. If you don't have a healthy environment where everyone can flourish equally um, without favorites, it doesn't matter if someone um, has you know, um, amazing data today and one person doesn't have amazing data, but maybe later on that amazing data may lead to a nature science or cell paper, right? Mm -hmm. And the person that had amazing data that you thought was amazing data made you know, have a smaller paper, right? So it could be either way. And so what we have to do is take a step back from what our personal um, ideologies are or our personal feelings towards the individual, but actually treat everyone the same. And having the IDP plan and the mentoring contract 
allows for you to create some home bases so that you stay in the lanes of mentoring and intentional mentoring versus getting off and trying to pick favorites, which leads you into that negative mentoring space mm -hmm. that we don't want because it's an ineffective type of mentoring. Yeah, that leads us to the negative side of mentoring and everything oh. that we discussed yesterday as well. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> Into the topic of microaggressions that you yes. just published oh a paper in, in, the, in Pathogens and Disease. Um, uh -huh. So what is microaggressions and, and why is it such an important topic in STEM, in the STEM community? So Microaggressions is very important, um, regardless of race, creed, or ethnicity. And I want to kind of make it clear that microaggressions can happen on both sides, whether you're someone of the majority in a certain country or a majority of overall uh, versus someone that may be a minoritized individual in that country or um, a gender minoritized individual, maybe women versus men. All these things matter in the context of understanding who an individual is, but it doesn't mean that that's all of who they are. And sometimes microaggressions arise because we don't understand who that individual is culturally. So a definition of microaggressions um, would be a statement or action or incident where there's um, indirect or subtle unintentional discrimination that occurs that people may be not aware what they're doing to a marginalized group. Um, examples of other marginalized groups will also be sexual gender minorities or maybe a certain type of religious group that's not as common as some of the majority religious groups. Um, and so this is something that we want to keep in mind because it, it can stem as a way that needs to be very cautious when you're doing um, microaggressions. You really want to apologize after you're aware of what's going on. Just sometimes you may not know that it's a, a, a yeah. microaggression. Um, and that's okay. And then also in the paper, we talk about macroaggressions. Um, some people call macroaggressions blatant acts of racism, but I don't like to kind of say that. What I like to say is that um, macroaggressions are intentional discriminatory acts that are around um, certain different biases that someone has that are being recognized over and over again, that they've no longer become unconscious biases, which I think is an incorporation of microaggressions versus where conscious bias is where they have a certain stereotypical view that's embedded, regardless mm -hmm. of that individual and those type of um, thoughts come out in the, in the macroaggression. Both can be changed with allyship. Um, macroaggressions may take longer to change, but they can change. So that's mm -hmm. why I say that I don't want to say that they're always acts of high level discriminatory acts like racism. Um, there could just be discriminatory acts that are in nature and biased ingraining them from maybe learned behavior. Mm -hmm. And so we have to kind of reinforce that positive behavior, um, hopefully with this paper and other papers that are out about microaggressions. Yeah. yeah. And as you said, some of this is like really unconscious. So there's a, there's a huge link. I feel when I read your paper exactly. with, uh, with conscious bias and implicit bias and all of this, like yeah. assume you already know the person and then you say something it's like, no, that's that's just so not true. It, exactly. For example, yeah. like I'm, I'm a big guy, but I played tennis when I was in college and I still play now. And um, I did Taekwondo, but nobody would think that I you know do that, let alone being a scientist sometimes. A lot of people assume I'm a basketball player. Um, and so, you know, those are things that are kind of like little microaggressions because people make assumptions because I'm super tall, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's things that we all have to kind of take a step back and say, oh, well, do you play sports versus, oh, 
how was the game yesterday? You know, if you see me like in workout gear, maybe I played tennis, not basketball, right? You know, or football even, you know? Um, yeah. So those are type of things that we just have to work to together um, and be aware of. And it, and it kind of, you know, we also need to think about the different types of microaggressions. Mm -hmm. um, there are some that are behavioral um, and then there's some that are verbal and then yeah. they break down into specific types. Um, Dr. Sue was um, the person that actually developed the three types of microaggressions. And so there's micro assaults, micro insults and micro invalidations. And there's also kind of situational or environmental microaggressions, if you mm -hmm. will. Environmental microaggressions is very easy. It might be, there's say there's someone that did some things back in history that were not acceptable, but they had tons of money to be able to donate to an institution, right? Yeah. Um, and so their legacy is on a building but to other individuals, it may be harmful, right? And so that is um, a way to actually assert, you know, my macroaggressions in the form of environmental macroaggressions because every day that individual gets to see that building over and over again, it's kind of causing some harm. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's something that, you know, has to be done on an institutional level. I tackle things that could be done on a PI level or a mentor yeah. level. Um, which is more of the micro assaults, micro insults, and micro invalidations. Just quickly, a micro assault is um, where you're looking intentionally um, at uh, someone's behavior and you say certain things that are discriminatory that you don't mean intended to be offensive, but they are. So yeah. for example, like if someone's saying something, but at the end they say like, you know, if it's a comma there, I was just only joking, you know, but it uh, could actually be harmful, you know? Yeah. Um, and so we have to be really careful um, when we're doing things like that. You know, I was talking to one of my students yesterday and she was so sad about how someone was talking about, um, they were saying things about women and they were saying she was only joking. And she was saying, but I go through, you know, things as well. Um, and she's mixed. So it's a very interesting setup of, you know, different racial dynamics mm -hmm. that's going on. So she's a minoritized individual and she's of the majority and she sees through a different lens than most people. And so um, it's a really weird space for her to be in. So we were talking about strategies of how to properly combat micro assaults, yeah. how to talk about them. Um, and then she's also talked to me about some micro insults where people have done comment on one of her actions and said, oh, that is so, you know, this, you know, of this particular group, right? Um, that and I absolutely saying, know. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. So, so I... I because I'm so I'm German and I used to work in a in a lab in Spain and you know Spanish people are really relaxed with time. While for Germans it's always um, assumed that they're always on time and they're never late. But that one time that I'm late, like two minutes to a meeting, it's like, oh, you shouldn't be late. You're German. You're supposed to be on time. And I'm like, <laughs> so I'm supposed to be on time, but everybody else is allowed here to be late. That's, That's not right. fair. Get, that is just I get what not you're fair. Saying. Exactly. So these are stereotypical views yeah. that are associated with people's behavior, right? Um, and I think German people are lovely, by the way. My uncles uh, stay in Germany. They love it, actually. <laughs> Um, but I just, you know, I just think that, you know, um, we all have to be careful about how we speak, but yeah. it's not to the point where, you know, like if you say something, because we've all said microaggressions and we don't mean them, but it's just that you have to have room to have them addressed and open to change. That's the key thing. It's not if you say them something, it's how you actually respond to yeah. when someone's correcting you or suggesting, if you will, not yeah. necessarily a correction, right? And then the last thing is micro invalidations where people 
are invalidating what you've accomplished, basically. So if someone's talking about, you know, with your instance, talking about, you know, one group versus another, they're, they're saying, well, you know, you were always on time until this one time, but then now, you know, you're invalidated for being on time. You know, you're, you're never uh, viewed as the person that's on time again, right? Okay. And then that's, that's something that actually comes up and um, it undermines an individual's experience. And, you know, it actually can hurt an individual um, much more. So we have to be careful about what we say. Another example of micro invalidations would be telling an individual, telling another minoritized group that um, let's say um, this particular instance didn't occur because you don't know what you're talking about. Just because they didn't see it from their eyes yeah. doesn't mean that it didn't occur. Yeah. It's also, you know, the reflection of the individual. So we have to be careful to listen to people's experiences if we are not there, especially. And if we're there in the moment, still try to listen, maybe not have such a quick response, be slow to speak, um, listen, gather your thoughts and say, that's interesting if you don't necessarily agree say maybe let's reconvene on this conversation after I've had time to think about it and then let it play, get other people's counsel and advice and then come back to addressing the microaggression when everyone can be even killed. Yeah. So sometimes it's not good to address it right on, just no, sometimes yeah. it's kind of like, okay, you let this play out, then you come back the next day and say, this happened, I would love to address it. So this is just you know some yeah. of the things that we cover in the paper. Always good to give it some time, let everybody calm down with their emotions and yeah. Exactly, exactly. Okay. So why do you think that the STEM fields or the academic community is suffering so much from this behavior? Because people would think, again, stereotypical unconscious bias, um, generally yeah. scientists are meant to be intelligent and to um, like, you know, behave in the right way and not show such, such discriminating behavior. So that's a great question. Um, <laughs> One thing that we need to really think about is, you know, there's literature that suggests that when microaggressions occur, people's behavior or low or their self-esteem is lowered. Mm -hmm. And so just in general, having better work morale, just in general from a business sector, actually demonstrates that people are more productive. Okay. So that's something that we should just think about as a baseline. So now if you think about that, how is this important for our field? Well, if you're able to actually push an individual um, with positive affirmation and positive mentoring, they can produce a lot. But if everyone in the entire group is included and doesn't feel like they're um, you know, antagonized in a way such with microaggressions every day, they too can be productive and there's more productivity that goes on in the laboratory. So that's the first point that I wanna make. Microaggressions interrupt individual self-esteem which also interrupts people's creativity and innovation and also discredits their ability to be able to perform in an environment that may not be for them. Um, and so that's one thing. The other thing that we want to think about as we all are scientists, um, we also have to learn to understand other people's cultures. If we understand about CQ, which is cultural intelligence or cultural or cultural quotient, we're able to actually embrace a more well-rounded environment and it allows for us to actually understand things in our different thoughts um, and, and from different perspectives because individuals think differently all across the world. You and I don't necessarily maybe think the same about everything, but some things are the same. So start with the commonalities and actually and build around that so that you can actually enforce a beautiful environment so that you don't harm harmful and stressful um, ideologies for an individual 
and they continue to experience that because stress can actually lead to alternative health outcomes that they don't want to see in their own life. And so we're trying to avoid those things. And we're also trying to increase better mental health and allow for individuals to have real knowledge and power to be able to empower themselves to be a great individual. Um, and when we have so many microaggressions every day, that actually pushes down an individual yeah. from being great and, yeah. and just performing the task at the optimum level. Yeah, I, I can agree with that, definitely. That has been so amazing, so interesting. Thank you so much. So now at the end, we always have a couple of like personal random question. <laughs> if I can ask those to you as well. Of course, of course. Um, so what was your favorite subject at school and how did you get into science? Oh my gosh, you're going to think I'm a little crazy, but it has, oh, we all are. Don't worry. Kind of, it's, um, it's, it has nothing to really do with science per se. I would say I had an actual class that was really fun. And then I also had, um, well, I had two classes that were really fun. And then I also had an experience with like my grandparents. It wasn't a formalized training, but we learned a lot at home. My grandfather was an auto mechanic. So I learned a lot about like engineering physics from him. Wow. Um, hence the first take on the car example. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then it goes well. Um, and then also um, I learned a lot about botany. So we grew a lot of our own um, vegetables and we garden. And so I actually learned how to actually cultivate different strains of veggies, things like that. So it was really mm -hmm. nice. And that was one of the courses that I loved when I got to undergrad at Winston-Salem State was actually taking botany with Dr. Boylan. Um, Dr. Boylan got her degree, I think it was from Yale, and she decided to come to Historically Black College to be able to increase everyone's understanding of biotechnology, um, ability to understand why um, protecting crops were so important. And so I, I took um, botany with her, I made an A, it was so phenomenal. I decided to actually do my summer internships at Duke and Wisconsin in actual plant physiology or plant pathology. Um, and so that was one course. The other course was a combination of this one instructor just teaching multiple courses. So every course that I was with, with Dr. Clark was just fabulous. Pharmacology, um, it was really medphys pharmacology, but pharmacology, cell biology, and then um, medical terminology. And then there was one other course, um, like um, it was like bioseminar. Anything that I was in with him, I just loved. And so it just made me just get into just science, love science. <laughs> yeah. I was just like oh my gosh I want to be just like him and so yeah. I you know it, it just it, it just the thought process and everything was just so amazing um and it's just something that I I just couldn't live without you know I'm so happy and fortunate that I went to my undergraduate school to be able to immerse myself and different types of research and as you can see I'm still talking about them today yes. botany and cell biology <laughs> so and much like passion, fusing them yes. together right exactly and so that's something that you know I still want to carry on um, in my department of molecular physiology and biophysics um, but I've added some new loves like structural biology that I picked up oh, um, during yes. my um, my my degree well not my degree I guess my extra training I call everything a degree because I feel like a postdoc is an extra degree because um, as much as you do um, but yeah, I don't know. That was kind of one thing that I really, you know, even though it's a multitude of things that kind of inspired me. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay, so this kind of brings us to our next question as well. Like, just one sentence. What are you really passionate about? Um, uh -huh. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah, yes. <laughs> one sentence. I'm passionate about travel. Travel. Okay. 
Where do you want to go? Great question. That's just me being curious now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, everywhere in the world, but one of the places that I love is the beach. Um, And it allows for me to just sit there and reflect. It allows me to be one with nature, allows me to just enjoy. Some people say the universe, I say God, um, and just see the beauty of everything that's there. Um, And it allows me to just have peace about myself and allows me to be whole. I mean, give that really nice reflection when everything in the world may be crazy. But as long as I can get a little beach time, sit sit at the beach and just sit there, I I mean, I I just love it. My favorite beach right now, I would say it's like um, Megan's Bay in the Virgin Islands. Um, It's my favorite beach. Um, I just love to sit there and just watch the beautiful, um, the beautiful sea. Um, It's just amazing. That is amazing. Um, maybe I'm going to make you jealous now, but so the beginning of this year, I moved to Gran Canaria and whenever I need some alone time, just some, you know, reflection time or just time to think about whatever, I'm going down to the beach and just sit there and think and yeah, let's just, oh. <laughs> it's just me and the oh. water basically. Yes, exactly. You, I, I like I, it. I'm not jealous, sort of, but <laughs> I'm in Iowa, so I'm like landlocked. Oh, so, but I mean, you know, one thing is though, when I go to Vanderbilt in Tennessee, it's kind of closer to like major okay. airports. Okay. So like I can take Nashville to Atlanta and then maybe I can take a weekend trip from Atlanta to like a nice beach, like Miami or Puerto Rico or, you know, somewhere yeah. that's, you know, like just really quick and I can still be back on a Monday. So. Okay. <laughs> Should I just tell you that I have the beach like five minutes down the road? <laughs> no, you shouldn't say, you. no, you shouldn't say that. Oh my gosh. Now you're not supposed to say that. I was comfortable with you saying that you're near the beach, <laughs> not five minutes away. Oh my gosh, that is so not fair. <laughs> That's fine. Okay, <laughs> I'm gonna stop it now. <laughs> so, okay, the next personal question would then be: What do you do in your free time when you're not in the uh, lab and you don't write amazing research papers about microaggressions and the STEM community? What do you actually um, do? <laughs> so, great question. So, I actually do a lot of travel. Um, for my fun time. Um, recently, I actually went to Florida um, and it was really nice. I decided to just go to just several different beaches just to enjoy myself. Um, and then besides that, I love hanging out with my family and my friends and um, my, my family, as in like my partner. So those things are so important to me um, and it allows for me to be a whole person. Mm-hmm. And then I also like to play tennis as well. Um, so it's really fun. That's good. That's good. <clears throat> okay, and the last question for today. What would you do if you were donated $10 million to your research project? Wow. Wow. So, yeah. so, 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 wow. Okay, so several <laughs> different things. Um, so, one is that um, I would first make sure that there are other minority labs that may need funding. And okay. so if the funding is designated only for me, what I would try to do is find if there are ways that we could collaborate, minoritize, meaning, you know, ethnic, racial minorities or women that I could collaborate with on certain topics. And then maybe we could share funding that way. Um, and then I would, that would maybe be like one or $2 million. And then the $8 million, I would take $5 million and actually um, put it into like a trust so that I could actually be able to have it used for undergrads and grad students. So I would want to be able to um, only train, you know, more more students so that we could have mm-hmm. increase of diversity in science. And then the other part that would be set aside would be for just pure innovation. So like taking on like weird things, like 
Um, people call me crazy in the lab anyway. It's kind of funny. Um, so I, I like studying organelle, organelle communication. Mm -hmm. And so I would want to spend out from just doing like Merck communication to actually looking at other organelle communication. So ER plasma membrane, um, ER like peroxisome or mitochondria or mitochondrial lysosome interactions and really understand that because I could dive in deeper because I have the funds. And then I also would take more of a tour in the tropical areas, not only because of the beach, but actually go access their plants because there's certain places like, for example, in um, Jamaica, they have certain uh, plants that, that you actually can drink as a tea that are specific for treating like cancer. So these things are not known to the public eye, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different things that um, I could use because I could actually increase the production of um, mass, uh, mass spec production to look at phytoestrogen compounds. And I could actually screen a lot more compounds and cell lines and actually determine what's their function around mm -hmm. mitochondria energetics. And so that would be what I focus on. And then I also would just leave um, some of the money because you never know in the future, you might get an amazing idea. So you yeah. don't want to spend all the money, right? No, um, and so that's kind of what I would do. Um, and then I, I hopefully would be able to um, also set up like maybe a consulting company to help other people to be able to um, help them with their research if they're struggling, maybe to be able okay. to, um, you know, teach them kind of like how to actually like push the envelope. It's okay to have like these, you know, crazier ideas because they could lead to something amazing. Um, and so that's kind of what I would do. That's nice. a great question. That's a great answer. Okay, this has been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time Thank talking you. with me. And Thank you so much. Yes. And that's it for this week's episode of STEM to Views. Tune in again to hear more research stories from the scientists themselves. Until next time, you can follow us on Twitter at STEMcognito and on Instagram, also at STEMcognito where you can keep up to date with our latest guests, video uploads and science communication tips, and also watch the video version of this interview. See you over there. <laughs>